church fights. That's a good topic for a Sunday morning, isn't it? Uh, what, co- what causes quarrels and fights among you is how it begins. And, and there's some pretty classic church fights out there that have caused like, some pretty devastating results in the end and hurt many people. And not to be taken lightly, but, but it's ironic that it's the similar things over and over again. Like some of the most classic ones uh, are, are, are this. One of them is the choice of carpet in a church. Yes, the, ch- the choice of carpet has caused churches to divide and split in church history, believe it or not. One of the greatest, some of the greatest fights come out of uh, carpet and decor and, and the like and have caused church doors to close because of it. Another one is like this, this beautiful piano, right? Many churches fight over pianos. Did you know that? Churches fight over uh, what type of piano, what kind of piano. It has to be the baby grand. It has to be here and don't move it or uh, heaven help you, right? And then, and then we have this, these fights over, over these things like carpet, pianos, or use of the building. This one's classic, right? Because my ministry has used this part of the building for my entire life. And so I'm, I'm going to use it again this week, right? And, and we don't give up and we have no grace and we end up fighting and quarreling about these things. Some classic things like those. Maybe you can think of some, especially if you've been a part of a church, church life for a while. These things happen. But what causes them? It's not the carpet. It's not the piano. It's not the use of the building. What causes fights and quarrels among us? See, the, the root of church fights is not external, but something internal. This is where James is going. It's not something external, but it's something internal. Our selfish desires that end up not being met cause this thing called aggression and anger, which then in turn comes out on to whoever's in my way. Selfish desire. The condition of our inner being affects how we treat each other. It really does. So when we ignore our inner being, when we ignore our heart, and we end up, we end up in these quarrels and fights and, and anger and bitterness. So you know it is an internal issue. It's your being that affects your doing. This is what we've been talking about. Uh, we're coming back to this series on B for a, for a while so we can get, get through James and see what James is really talking about here. Um, but, but if you can remember, if you've been here for a while, rewind back to November of last year. It's impossible, right? Why would I even ask? But here, I'll remind you. Here's a slide of being, doing, and bearing. Uh, a disciple, as a church, we, we've come to this, that each disciple has a being, that, come, that then is our doing and then our bearing. And our doing comes from our being, which produces our bearing. Every action we take comes from something within us. So then, if we let God work on our being by coming to him, in turn, we treat others differently. So there's something going on in our internal being that causes fights and quarrels. So what is it today? Well, James addresses being by the doing. He does this over and over again. If you look at James, uh, it's, it's not writing about what it is to become a Christian, necessarily, but what it looks like when one has already become one. Here's what conduct should look like. In fact, then, I think he gives like 54 commands 
expecting us to uh, live out a certain way, expecting the church to live a certain, a certain way because our being has been changed. So it reads a bit differently than the rest of the New Testament. It reads more like you should do this and do this and do this and do this. And soon, if you just read it like that, you can think, oh, James is just a book about doing and, and uh, work salvation. And that's not what he's getting at. No, he's assuming that the readers reading this are ones who have been a part of the church, who have followed Jesus and have a, have a heart that's this regenerate heart. He, re, he addresses the, the recipients of the letters in chapter 2 as my brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So he's addressing believers. So this is for everyone who calls himself a believer or wants to be a believer, listens to this. It means something's already happened in us. And he's addressing the doing that's going on. It's not reflecting their being. A regenerate heart acts differently. So James gives those 54 direct commands, expecting the church to reflect what Jesus has already done in their hearts. These are statements of doing. Uh, I want to review then, before we get to our passage, what chapter 3 was really talking about. Chapter 3 did two things. It talked about the taming of the tongue. and talked about how the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. That's exciting, right? And then it goes on to talk about these two types of wisdom that we can have. An uh, earthly wisdom, which is rooted in selfish ambition. And then there's an earth, uh, a heavenly wisdom. And the heavenly wisdom is rooted in purity and peace. Which that one we must ask for. Because we don't have it. It doesn't come to us naturally. There's only one with that wisdom. And he's God. This earthly wisdom comes from selfish ambition. And a heavenly wisdom that's rooted in purity and peace. There are these two types of wisdom. Our passage today flows right from that. That says then, with these two types of wisdom in mind, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Of course, the logical thing to do is to back up and say, oh, it's earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom, which is rooted in selfish ambition, where I'll do anything to get my way, even hurt somebody else. That's what causes fights and quarrels among us. This is something that is internal called selfish ambition. Earthly wisdom says, look out for me at any cost. But then we don't get what we want. So we have to take power over somebody to get it. My rights have been violated. It's injustice. So we take power. And then as James says, pretty emphatically, you kill and covet. Now I pray today that, I, that no, nobody here has gone that far. <laughs> to murdering somebody. But that's where it leads. That's where it leads. Because we know what Jesus talked about. When we hate somebody in our hearts, it's as good as murder. Doesn't that feel extreme to you? No. By the way it affects us, by the way our internal being, the importance of it, and, and how selfish desire sours us and, and turns our heart to darkness, it's not extreme at all. Earthly wisdom has me at the core and not God. So much that even our prayers are affected by it. 
And that's where he goes with this. That our prayers are actually affected by our selfish, selfish ambition. So see this. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Okay, you're fighting because you're not getting what you want. So come to God. Ask him. And then he says this. When you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Our motives with earthly wisdom at the core means when we bring our requests to God, selfish ambition is at the core. We want to just fulfill our own desires. What does that mean? Well, maybe it sounds something like this. God, help me to win. Right? You ever heard prayers like that from celebrities on TV where it's like, I knew God would be on our side, right? We were praying. Or God, help me to earn more money. God, help me to, to get good grades and, and to really just, I just want to pass this class, actually. Just help me get through, right? Just help me to get that promotion so that I can have a, a better life. God, help me with these things that I can succeed. Or, or you can ask for good things. And some of these are good things as well. But the motives are not quite what they should be. You see, maybe you're asking to win or to earn money or to get good grades or promotion because of these core things. We want to be whole. We want joy in our lives. We want peace in our lives. Do we not? But we ask for it through these other things. Because we think we're going to get there by getting that raise, that promotion, by getting that, that degree. Because if I get that one, that's how I'm going to be happy, right? Well, at least my parents will be happy. Then they can get off my back, right? That's... Right? There's these motives that, that, that sour really what we, we want. Wholeness, joy, and peace. But, but that's actually not the motive in the end. It's actually a little more selfish than that. So what does God do? He replies back with this. He says, this isn't going to work. You're asking for the wrong thing. And have corrupt motives. And we just don't listen to him. We just keep pleading. We get angry with him and say, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? Are you not there? Are you not with me? As if my rights have been violated. I find that, that really interesting. I think we live in a day and an age where we come to God and tell him my rights are violated with you. Right? We have such pride and arrogance that fill us. That we actually have the goal to come to God and say, my rights are violated. You're not helping me. Anyway. Well, the tides turn. And James gets a little more forceful with his language. And he says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? There's an accusation here of the selfish heart that is in opposition to God. It's first called an adulterous heart. It's a, we're an adulterous people. James is looking at the, these Jewish Christians and calling them adulterous people, which would have meant a lot to them. 
They would have understood that in, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, what, what was told of these stories of an adulterous people. God had called this nation Israel to himself and he said, we've made this covenant with them, a marriage with them. And he gave them all these promises of a good life if they would just follow after him and make him the, the center of their lives. And they cheated on him. They cheated on him with other gods, with other, other nations, and, and didn't follow his ways like he promised. So when James tells the church here, which were primarily Jewish Christians as he was addressing them, would have got this. He says, you're cheating on God with the world. The prophet Hosea, that's what it's all about in the Old Testament. So Israel was cheating on God. So James is telling them, you've made a covenant relationship like marriage. You vowed with God and now you're breaking it. The vows you made at conversion, the vows you made at baptism are broken. This is a serious, this is a serious accusation. The doing of their hands has been corrupted. Uh, so adulterous people is the one accusation. The second is this, is a friend of the world. A friend of the world. Well, what's it mean to be a friend? And what is this world? And why is it not possible to be friends with the world without being this thing called an enemy with God? Well, if you look at the New Testament, there's great correlation within the New Testament authors on what, what's going on here. For example, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 4, he says this, that we become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So the world might mean something to do with these pleasures that we want fulfilled. They're in opposition to God. John writes in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or anything uh, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God is adamant, it seems. When we align ourselves with this world, that we're opposed to God. Whatever this world is that, that, that draws us away from God into our own selfish pleasures. That seems to be the focus. Nice, David Nystrom describes the world as forces and elements opposed to God. So it could be institutions, values, traditions, any of these things that are opposed to God. So God is adamant when we align ourselves with this world, we are opposed to God. What's a friend? What's a friend? A friend, I think to me, even as I was pondering this, is it means a couple things. It means loyalty and influence. Loyalty and influence. When I'm friends with somebody, uh, I'm, I'm quite, I'm loyal to them, right? I want to be with them. I want to spend time with them. I'll, I'll, I'll back them up. Friends are loyal. And friends have influence. When you start hanging out with somebody, when you start um, becoming friends with somebody, they, they rub off on you and you rub off on them. You start maybe even buying the same things. Maybe you wear similar clothes or get into the similar hobbies. So when you're a friend with this world, 
that is opposing God, that will rub off on us. It will. Our daughters, we had a babysitter a long time ago, uh, and, and, and she had kids of her own. And one of the kids was going through a swearing phase, so guess what? Our kids went through a swearing phase, at least the one that could talk at the time. Anyway, so, uh, so this came home, and we're just like, what do, we, what do we do with this, right? And so we have to explain why these are, are not good words to talk and speak over, and, and, and of course, you know, talk with the babysitter, and that's never hard, right? Uh, and, and so there's these things, right? When, when you're friends... We rub off on each other. And as adults, you're thinking, well, that's kids. No, that's, that's all of us. It's a part of our human nature. How do you think marketing works? Friends or people of influence over your life rub off on you. Ads target that and market you for that. They do it, so I must buy it too. I got to keep up. It, must, it looks like it's fulfilling their lives, right? The happiest people in the world are in commercials, right? Putting on that shirt, putting, putting on that brand, or eating that, that burger. Whatever it is, buying that vacuum. But man, that vacuum is really good, right? Like, we do things, we rub off on each other. Yes, to be friends means loyalty and influence. So it must be impossible to be friends with the world and friends with God. Well, here's James's background again. The church was being used at this point as a social climbing ladder. Most people in the church at this point, and some people say about maybe even 90%, were poor. Were poor and they would gather together. And all of a sudden, it seems, from what James tells us, some rich people started coming. And being converted and following Jesus. And so why not take advantage of them, right? They're rich. They have influence. They have power. And so let's, let's sit a little closer to them, right? Let's be friends with them and give them a special space. That's what was going on. People were trying to feed their selfish ambition. They would even say probably it was for the church, you know, of course, Maybe they'll give more to the church. Maybe we'll have better influence in our community. Some were just simply trying to take advantage with selfish ambition. James was using this letter to express God's opposition to this thinking and this life, this doing. So he makes no mistake when he dichotomizes friendship with the world and with God. Seems like a dire situation in the end, doesn't it? It's not, like, like not a good conversation you want to have with somebody in authority over you. You've broken these vows, broken this covenant. So what's the hope? What's the hope? Well, let's keep reading. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? Man, that's such a short phrase there that you can like really skip over it. But well, we got to really settle in on it for, for a while and, and talk about what's going on here. Because uh, it says he gives us more grace. Right before that, there's this phrase called envies intensely. And, and as, you, as you start to read about it, it's not clear exactly which, how to take this envies intensely. And who actually is envying intensely here? 
in the original scriptures. There's two types of way to take this. Uh, one is this, that, that we are the ones, that God created a spirit in us that envies intensely. Which kind of agrees with the context of what's going on, of the selfish ambition. So we envy for, for things around us and, and for others around us. That makes sense. The other way to take this is that he is the one envying for the spirit in us. That's the variant in the text here that you can take. That he is the one who jealously longs, I think the ESV puts it that way, that he jealously longs for the spirit that he caused to dwell in us. I mean, you could take it either way, logically, even, even within the text here. The one with the, him being jealous of us makes a lot of sense too. He just talked about being friends with the world as being enemies with God. The Old Testament is full of this language of jealousy, how God is a jealous God and wants us solely for himself to not be an adulterous people, but to be married to him in dedication and serving and have no other gods before him. So it makes sense that either of these could be true. And if you read this next phrase, either work as well. It says, but he gives us more grace. If we are the ones with an envious spirit, guess what? He gives us more grace. If he is the one, if we are the ones caught in, in cheating and, and he is jealous for us, guess what? It's so good that it says next that he gives us more grace. says, that is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The good news this morning is there is more grace. Wherever you find yourself this morning, if you find yourself in the camp that is a part of this, envies intensely, and, and you've been <laughs> friends with the world, guess what? There's more grace for you today. Because we have a God who longs to be with us, who longs to spend time with us, who longs to, to, to love us beyond what we will ever know. Yes, there is more grace. How do we get it? That's the question. How do we get this grace? I want it now, right? I want that grace. How do I get there? And it says this, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As he quotes the Old Testament again. So the conclusion to that for James is submit yourselves then. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your heart, your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. There's grace in submission. There's grace as we submit ourselves to God. Submitting is the act of, of acknowledgement that I am not the one in charge of my life. I need someone a little more powerful, a little more wiser and smarter than I. I need, I need God. I need Jesus. That's what submitting really is. And in that moment of submission, which happens probably daily, but we need to do it daily, we find grace and grace for today.
That's what this is saying. So if submitting is that act of acknowledgement that I'm not, not the one in charge, and I, I can't be in charge, but I give my life over to God, what does it mean? There's three things that go on here that I wanted to get into that I think are, are quite, quite exciting, that the text gets exciting, though, though the language sounds a little depressing at times. But let me get into that. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The first one is this, submitting and resisting the devil have a direct relationship. Well, throughout James, um, we've noticed that there's this, been this language that he's not afraid to talk about hell and, 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 the, and the power of hell over the tongue, which we saw in chapter 3. And not afraid to talk about the enemy and the devil, and that there's actually some power that he's influencing us with. Helping to feed this selfish ambition that is within us. So much so that we're just so influenced by him that we disobey God. But what happens? If you've been a friend of the world and you're saying, no, 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 I want to submit to God now, guess who has to flee? Any power that the enemy has over us, devil, Satan, whatever you call him, any power he has over us, he has to flee, it says. He doesn't have a hold on you anymore. That's good news, church. When we submit to God, the devil must flee. He has no power in God's presence. An author, Douglas Moo, says it this way. Whatever power Satan may have, the Christian can absolutely be absolutely certain that he's been given the ability to overcome that power. That's really important. Some of us who live in this world of, of thinking about Satan can often, uh, Christians do this all the time, where we're like, oh, Satan has such power. And we can get a little obsessed over the power of the enemy to the point where we are talking as if he has more power than God somehow. Oh, that's a friend with the, with the world. That's what they would say, but not us. No. We submit to God and be friends with God. And he has to flee. Church, this is grace. This is what he offers. Well, the second thing is this. Submitting and coming near. Verse 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Also another verse that I think sometimes we can just run over. Look at this motion language. I love this. So the, when we submit to God, the devil must flee. But what are we to do? Submitting means coming near to God. Submitting means coming near to God. We have a need to be in the presence of God. Of God. We have a need. It's paramount. We're created to be in His presence. We're created to, to live in His presence. That's why that song can say we're desperate for a touch of heaven. Because we're not made for just a touch, we're actually made to dwell in His presence. And yet our selfish ambition would try to pull us away from that relationship and try to fill it with all these other things. Yes, submitting means coming near to God. For this second thing, God always comes near to us when we come near to him. That's his promise. It's like he's waiting. 
He's waiting for us to turn away from the world, to turn to him, that he could open his arms and accept us. And to lavish us with his love. He's waiting for that. He's waiting for us to be in his presence. So submitting means, okay, I'm going to turn to you, God, now. I want to be in your presence. I want to be in your presence. David Nystrom says this, To come near to God, then, is more than simply to resolve to improve one's spiritual life. It is fully to enter the presence of God. To reside there. To become comfortable there. To be at home. James uses this imagery because he wishes to remind his readers of God's longing to know them. I love that. In the midst of a letter about doing and all these direct commands, these 54 direct commands, at the heart of it, I think, is this. Submitting to God and coming near to him and his desire to be with us. This is grace. Yes, there's grace in submission. So the first one was this, submitting and resisting the devil. The second one was submitting and coming near. And the third is this, submitting and purity. The passage goes on in verse 8 and says, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's like a grandpa getting the, snapping my, my knuckles or something here. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Submitting means God purifies us and in turn lifts us up. Notice the language here. There's language of hands being washed and a heart being cleansed. Hands and heart. What does that make you think of? Hopefully by now you're thinking, oh man, as a disciple, we have a being, doing, and a bearing, right? The doing being the hands, the heart being our being, and this is the reality they both need cleansed. It's not one or the other. They both need cleansed. And of course, this is by submitting to God. It's the only way we can become clean to God. What's the significance here? Hands and heart, uh, again, is an Old Testament theme. Talking about the wholeness of our being, often we'd say hands and hearts. Hands and heart. So, when it came to the Old Testament, there was this thing called animal sacrifice. Maybe you've heard of it. And so, they'd bring an animal to the temple and you would not be allowed into the temple, which means God's presence. That's what the temple represents. God's presence. You wouldn't be allowed even into these certain areas without being clean. There'd even be a ceremonial washing of hands. But often you would come in, lay your hand on the animal, and then you would confess your sins in front of the priest. Okay, so you'd, you'd spill your heart as your hands were on this animal. And then, as gruesome as it sounds, they, they would kill the animal along with your sins. They would go away. They'd be purified. And then you'd be able to enter into these other areas of the temple. You'd be clean. I praise God that we don't have to do that today. Because we have one whose name is Jesus who came to be that sacrifice for us. It's 
Communion Sunday. We're going to come here at the end in just a couple minutes and we're going to be taking in communion together. That's what this symbolizes. Jesus came so that, that we can be cleansed, that our hands and our heart can be purified. When we submit to him and say, God, I can't, I can't clean myself. I'm actually a pretty dirty person. I've been friends with the world. What's next? Well, Jesus comes and purifies us and declares us clean. But that's when we, only when we come and submit to him. This is now the role of Jesus. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins to make us pure. Church, this is grace. This is grace. Often where I think we're afraid to feel some of these feelings that are in here. To grieve, to mourn, to wail. I mean, it's not just commanding you to do it so that you just start, you know, crying. No, it's so that you actually feel something in the depths of your being that that there's this thing called conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. I'm not sure if you felt it where you did something wrong and God is telling you that you're doing something, something wrong and you feel it in the core of your being. That's okay. It's okay to feel that. We probably should feel that. Because it's called conviction. It's necessary. It's necessary to do. We were commanded here to grieve, mourn, and wail. Often in the Old Testament, that word grieve here was used to say, we're in imminent danger. Start crying. Like the enemy's attacking. Start grieving now. Panic, right? But here for us, it's, it's look at the condition of our hearts. Look at the condition. We should grieve over that. We don't always see it, do we? I think that's why this language comes up here and he says, turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. We can be caught up doing our own thing and in our own life and, and laughing and, and going about thinking I'm making the best choices in my day, having a great time. But yet when we come near to God and we, we start to listen to what he's saying, he's saying, wait a minute, Brandon, there's some things in your heart that aren't quite right. You need to address these. Often, you know what we do in those moments of conviction? We just go back to this, this side, right? It's like, I need to start laughing. This is my party side, right? And so we're laughing and we're, we're having a good time rather than trying to feel that guilt. It's not fun. No. But it's necessary. It's necessary. We don't always see it. But here James tells them directly, laughter needs to change to mourning, joy to gloom. We need this. Even this is grace. Even this is grace. I mean, you don't want to miss out being in God's presence. So whenever you feel conviction, you'll be like, okay, I must be coming near to God because I finally have some conviction. It's a good thing. You don't want to stay there. You want to be cleansed by his presence, by his blood, and accept his forgiveness. This is grace. So then it goes on and talks what to do next. The, the external thing we talked about at the beginning, those quarrels, those fights, it comes back to that at the end of this passage and says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. What, this is what happens, right? We start fighting. I start then picking you apart and then I tell you and other people how, how I really think about you, right? We slander. 
We slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. That's curious. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver, the judge, who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James returns to this church fight argument that he was making. Because it's turned slanders for them as well. So he makes the argument that judging a brother or sister judges the law. And so, therefore, the law is given by the lawgiver, not you. Let the lawgiver do the judging, not you. My question is this. Why is judging a brother or sister judging the law? Why? Why would that be? And as I was working through this, I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Because like, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, what's the law? The law is the law of Moses, right? He gave the Ten Commandments. He gave all kinds of commands. That was the law that we're talking about here, right? So then, you know, if you judge a brother or sister, how is that judging the law? I was thinking too grand, too, too broad here. Back in James 2, verse 8, it actually tells us what he's thinking about when it comes to the law. And he's referring to Jesus, of course. James does that all the time. In 2, verse 8, it says, If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, you are doing right. In the middle, it says, If you are really keeping the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. And so I thought about this argument again. This is what Jesus taught. This is actually what he pointed to in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. This is what all the law holds on is to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love the Lord your God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what's the argument? So if you judge the law, you're saying that the law to love your neighbor isn't good enough. You're saying you're judging the law. You want to make the law now. When you start to quarrel to the point of slander, I mean, it doesn't mean you don't disagree with people. It doesn't mean we don't have some, maybe some arguments that get a little heated every now and then because some things are worth fighting over, but not to the point where we're, we're slandering one another and beating each other down. No. Because that means then we're judging this law that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. And at all costs. No matter human rights that we have, the rights that I think I have towards my brothers and sisters and, and what my standing might be in a, in a church or a community or in a group, it doesn't matter. The call here is to love your neighbors yourself. That's the law. And that's how I break it. Slanting brothers and sisters is breaking and putting oneself above the royal law. Our role, though, then, is to submit to the lawgiver and to love our neighbors as ourselves. James is actually calling for a reorientation of our heart to God, saying they just missed it. They've actually they just missed what Jesus was talking about. And we do the same. What's the call, then? The call is this. We need to come and ask God, how's my heart? We've done this almost at the end of every time of this series, is ask God this question, how's my heart? 
And today I want to ask it in this way. I want to give you a chance to talk with the Lord here this morning and ask, am I slandering? Am I, am I quarreling and frustrated? Maybe I'm frustrated with unanswered prayers with God. How dare he not answer me? But actually ask if you feel that, how's my heart? God, what is this saying about the condition of my heart? It may be earthly wisdom of selfish ambition. It may mean that that has settled into my heart. So I want to give you a bit of time before we come to the communion table to ask God that question. God, how's my heart? What's the condition here? Am I slandering, quarreling, frustrated, unanswered prayers? So go ahead, take some time and ask him that. Begin a time of confessioning. Just confess those things to him. Because as you submit and confess, then, then the devil will flee. Then, then you can be in his presence. And then you can be pure. And healing can begin. Church, I want healing in my life. So it's time for us to submit. I hope you join me here this morning. So take some time before communion and uh, enter into prayer. Worship team, you can come.